pay more attention. And if I continue, then it goes. Okay, hopefully it's good. <laughs> okay. The Chafetz Chaim says, Kama yismar mar ha'adam al How much will a person mutter, murmur about this at, in the end? In other words, how frustrated somebody will be in the long run. Shetachas rega echad shel hana b'chol pam shehil ito hayeter b'fituyav hishchis haseina v'hechashicham that in each situation that a person made a choice and he was convinced by his Yitzhahara to have the moment of enjoyment in the present moment that was only for a moment he destroyed his eyes and darkened them by allowing himself to be drawn every time after a spirit of of tuma of that which is not pure um, and to stray after it and each time he makes this little detour and goes off the path of where he wanted to really get to and it seems like it'll be nicer for the moment nicer for the moment nicer for the moment and how frustrating that will be someday to look back and realize that all those moments really didn't have very much value in and of themselves and yet look where you ended up that's the sort of zonim you strayed you thought you could follow your heart and your eyes and you wouldn't go too far you're basically on the path you want to be on and yet to discover afterward that each of those little steps took you so far away from where you wanted to be without bringing you close to anything that had much much significant value for you. The ha'ayin and the eye, who ha'pesach harishon shayetzahara, is the first opening, the first doorway for the yetzahara. Shedarko, shedarko, that via this opening of the eye, nichnas koach ha'chemda v'hataiva b'lev ha'adam, the power of desire and lust enters the heart of a person. Sha'alehim huzharnu min ha'torah b'mamar ha'sinai, things which we have been commanded by the Torah from Mount Sinai to avoid. And as Chazal have taught us and is quoted in Rashi on Bamidbar, the eye sees, the heart craves, and the, the tools for completing the action cause it to happen. So, I wasn't fast enough. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so it starts with the eyes and then goes to the heart, and the actions are only the completion of it. So on the one hand, the actions, of course, are very significant, but on the other hand, that's not where the root of the problem is. That's not where it starts. Okay. That was an idea that we already saw previously. Rabbi Tatz, really corresponding to this, this Chazal of Ha'ayin Roe Vehalev Chomed, Ukle Hamaisim Gomrim, the eye sees, the heart craves, and the actions complete it all. He points us back to Bereshis. The woman saw that the tree was good to eat. And he says, and I don't know who he's quoting from. Generally, he's quoting from someone, but he doesn't always say who. 
And he says, how can it be that you see that something tastes good? He says, the woman saw, the beginning of the sin is the woman saw that the tree was good to eat. What is being introduced here is imagination. She sees the tree and she imagines, she envisions, she can, she can imagine how good it will taste. That's the beginning of the taiva. And she projects that. And this is the, that moment is really the beginning of a state of exile. Even before she's eaten the fruit, there's an exile from Gan Eden. So what's the exile from Gan Eden? Gan Eden is a place where Tom, where it should be, that, let's put it this way, not the exile from Eden, the exile from perfection. Because the perfect world of Gan Eden is a place where the taste of the fruit is the taste of the tree where everything is as it seems, and therefore everything is behaving in accordance with what it is supposed to be. However, she's looking at the tree and she's seeing something that isn't what it is. She looks at the tree and she conjectures a, real, a, a, a fantasy about the tree that has nothing to do with the reality of the tree. The woman looks at the tree and she sees that it's good for food. But there's no connection to whether it is or isn't. She hasn't tasted it. She doesn't know anyone who's tasted it. The only thing she knows about this tree is that she's not supposed to eat it. So this is the first layering of things, seeing things differently from their true nature or essence. And that's the beginning of the process, already there, before she has eaten. Remember this chazal, the eye sees, the heart craves, the action is the completion. The action just finishes it. Here the eye sees and already we see the root of the sin has developed. Because we know that the outcome, this tree is the Eitz Hadas, Tovara, a tree of knowledge of good and bad. Das Tovarah, Das is, is intimate knowledge. So we know that one way of understanding this is it causes the commingling of Tov and Ra. It causes an, an intimate relationship between good and bad, so that when we look at things, we can't see. Is this something good? Is this something bad? I can't tell. Or maybe I can tell it's good, but there's bad mixed into it. Or it looks like it's bad, but there's good mixed into it which also leaves room for me to start justifying. I mean, there's all kinds of outcomes to this problem, that the good and the bad get mixed together. Good morning, Mommy. The good and bad being mixed together means you can't see either one completely for what it really is. You don't see good really as it truly is, and you don't see the bad as it really truly is. That started already as soon as she looked at the tree and started imagining how good it might be to eat. By the way, I think that might explain why Adam and Chava hid after the sin. They didn't want to see themselves for who they truly were. The idea of hiding at all. What is hiding? Hiding is you don't want to be seen as you will be seen. You're trying to cover something up. That's a mixing of reality and fantasy or of reality and perception. So he hides, try not to be seen for who he is.
is why Hashem responds and says, Ayeka, where are you? Because hearing his voice isn't enough. Where are you? Are you hiding? You're hiding your body because of what happened to your body? Is that you? Where are you? Go find who you really are. Right? This is the beginning of the layers of not seeing things as they are. And that is the same exact process of the eye sees, then the heart craves, and the action is the completion. Which is it's just an interesting, on the one hand it's a process, and on the other hand to see how even in the root of the eye seeing at the beginning of the process is really the whole story. Okay, back to the Chavetz Chaim. David HaMelech Hispalo, David HaMelech Davind, She'enav Loser and Ashav, that his eyes should not see for nothing. Uh, what's the word? Like, a few, shouldn't be futile. Futile. That was just to distinguish it from like a peasant and lord culture. Re'iyas <laughs> hashav, seeing for nothing. Alula lahashpia mibachina psychologit hashpa'a mezika ad kedei hechshalut ba'asiyah shav. I don't know who wrote that sentence, but it probably wasn't the Chavetz Chaim. David HaMelech Davin, from his teachings, clearly. David HaMelech Davin, he shouldn't see for nothing. Seeing for nothing has a tendency to influence psychologically in a negative way to the extent until it brings a person to do actions that are worthless too. This is kind of something we talked about when we were talking about like what kind of music do I listen to? What kind of books do I read? What kind of, like these kinds of choices where sometimes the choice is not between what's forbidden and what's permitted, but what about just seeing sort of in a wasted way, wasting time on what you see? That can lead to wasted actions. And this can actually have a negative effect. It's not just neutral. It's not sort of this par of thing. Well, it wasn't good. It wasn't bad. So, okay. He said the thought process of a person and his actions are influenced by what the eye sees, whether it's good or whether it's bad, because the eye sees, the heart craves, and the limbs enact the Avera. The downfall of Shimshon, who was the Haftarah, right, just a week or two, two weeks ago, the downfall of Shimshon, Chazal say, came from the fact that he went after his eyes. He did what was good in his own eyes. So those who have Yerushamayim tend to try and limit where they put their eyes so that they're not just letting their eyes wander because letting your eyes wander can lead to consequences. It can have an effect. We, you know, I think we sort of think like it won't have any. What could it possibly do to me? But it could. Now he goes to a different, a different topic, which is also an interesting concept. He says, on the other hand, the appearance of something can also have a positive effect. Again, like, you know, sort of we just keep talking about the negative. Let's remember that we're supposed to use it. The, a good appearance can have a positive effect. And it can arouse a desire to follow that pattern. In the same way, just like you could follow your eyes into doing the wrong thing, you could follow your eyes into something positive. Hayofi ha'pe'er ha'barak, beauty, loveliness, shine that is external of, of any particular object can arouse in a person a feeling of desire. I mean, this is marketing, right? Even in a funny way, have you ever seen, uh, you've certainly seen 
Well, they'll have products and they'll make them in a lot of different colors, a sort of rainbow of colors. The first one I remember doing it was the eMac, which was a very old uh, computer by Apple that really only sold to schools because it wasn't a very useful computer. But the eMac came in about six different colors or five different colors, and they used to advertise it. They would, they would put them in a circle sort of back to back, and it looked like a rainbow sort of a flower. And you'd see this picture, and it made you crave it. And, you know, you'll go into a store and you'll have Crocs in a million colors or whatever it is, jelly beans in a million colors. And the truth is you might only be buying one. Like, how many KitchenAid mixers are you buying, right? But when they're on... When they look there in a line, when you see 10 colors in a row, the whole concept of the mixer is so much more attractive. And it makes you more likely to desire and want it. <clears throat> even though you're only going to go home with one of them. And when you put it on your counter, you might see one very, very nice mixer, but you're not going to see it as part of a rainbow. It's also interesting, you know, see something in its context and in some sort of potential. But somehow, they, they, they made some study, and the way you buy something stays with you. So if you have seen that piece in context... Then every time then it'll still give you a more positive feeling about it. And if you buy something in a crummy store, you, you'll... You'll always feel that sort of dusty, <laughs> stacked up, it's not worth too much to bother yeah, with feeling. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So even... Okay. So the same loaf of bread, baked from the same dough, under the same conditions, but... One of them came out in a more beautiful shape than the others, right? We all know that from Can baking challah, where one of them, you know, the braid springs open in the oven, and you don't know, and you take it out, and it's got horns, you know. Okay. So even when you've got the same dough under the same conditions, the same oven, but one loaf came out a lot nicer than the others, somehow it's more round or it's more shiny it's perfectly normal. Everyone would prefer that one. If you lined them all up on the table and said, pick one, everyone's going to pick the one that came out the most beautiful, even though the taste of the challah is exactly the same. And this is the, the she looked at the tree and saw it was good to eat effect, right? That's the nature of a person. A person is influenced by the fact that something is lovely, and therefore, Chazal say, when it comes to doing mitzvos, it's a quote from the crossing of the Red Sea from Shiras Hayam, Ze keli ve'anvehu, this is my God and I will glorify him. And the, that, is a, that is a lesson in how we're supposed to do mitzvos. Chazal said, this tells us how we're supposed to do mitzvos. We hear it mostly is on sukkahs. People talk about Ze keli ve'anvehu on sukkahs, about decorating the sukkah. Making it, it's only for a week, but make the sukkah nice, right? Get your esrog and lulav nice. A sukkah that's not a, a shofar that's not a, a lulav that's not a, tzitzis that are not a. Everything that is marhiv es ha'ayin, that like expands the eye, that relaxes the eye, that's, that's a pleasure to gaze upon, can influence the behavior of a person to the good or for the bad. A person can crave something good too if you make it look lovely and attractive. And that's, in fact, how we're supposed to do mitzvah. This is my Lord, and I will glorify him. How do I glorify him? I will make his mitzvahs glorious, gloriously beautiful. 
Um, Sefer HaChinuch asks the question. Uh, actually, Sefer HaChinuch doesn't ask the question. Sefer HaChinuch, in counting up the mitzvahs and listing them, lists Losasuru Achare Levavchem Veachare Enechem as a single mitzvah. You shall not stray after your hearts and after your eyes. That's one mitzvah. And the Minchas Chinuch, which is a commentary on the Sefer HaChinuch, asks the question. Why is it one mitzvah? Shouldn't it, why not two? Or lavin? Why isn't it one? Why aren't? Why isn't it two prohibitions? Not to stray after your heart and not to stray after your eyes, like two different things. And he answers because the mitzvahs peulasan yachad. The 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 reality of it is they work together. You can't separate them out. You can't say, well, this was following eyes and that was following heart. Each one is influencing the other, so it's a joint. It's a joint effort. It's a single mitzvah, a single prohibition. You can't, you can't have a mitzvah that, that you can do with your right hand, but now with your left hand. You know, they're both connected in the same in the same way as your eyes and your heart. They're like but you could do a mitzvah only with your right hand, with your left hand not involved. Right, I think what could, he's saying is you not, couldn't it's, do it's, a mitzvah of like craving a, with your eyes right. without violating craving with your heart. Because the right. eye sees it, the heart does the craving. Or you can have the opposite. You can have the heart crave something, and then the eyes go look for it. But either way, they depend on each other. I think that's what he's saying, is that yeah. the action not only goes in unison, but also has to go in unison. Meaning you wouldn't have the love without both parts of it, it seems like. Is that different from what you said? It's a little different, yes. Okay. Which also means then that I, maybe I, I don't know if yeah, I heard no, I was No, I was saying that, you know, with your heart, you're you're straying with like a, an intrinsic part of you. Like if you do something with your right hand, or you do it with your left hand, you they're still both did intrinsic it. part right. of you. You, still, you still, did still did it, but you're saying that it's not. You're saying you don't need to do it with both hands, but you right. do in this case. In your this eyes case, and your heart are both. connected, so you right. are doing it with both. Right. That's the answer of the minchas chinuch. Is that once you're doing it with one, the other they're one goes along. Involved. And if it was forbidden, then both of them have been involved. Okay. Now, the bar, this, there's a sefer called the Baruch Sha'amar. He asks, well, let me start with, with this other uh, point. He, this is his commentary not on Shema, but on the brachos before Shema, where we say, V'ha'er einenu b'sora secha, in the brach of Ava Rabba. Uh, illuminate our eyes with your Torah and make our hearts stick or cling to your mitzvos. That's what we're asking Hashem. Illuminate our eyes in Torah and our hearts with mitzvos. So why are these two parts of the body listed here, the enayim and the lev, in, this bless, in that blessing? The eyes and the heart. And not all the other parts of the body that can connect to understanding Torah and keeping mitzvos, like the head and the ears and the mouth and the kidneys, because we say the kidneys, right, they have the adrenal glands. So you get, if you have a burst of emotion, so that actually, first of all, can be triggered by the kidneys, right, because you can sense something even unconsciously that triggers that you have to be afraid. 
and the kidneys can put out their hormones, right, the adrenaline and the cortisone, and all of a sudden you feel frightened or startled or whatever. So the kidneys are also deep involved. They're reactive and they're also causative to the emotional state. So there's all these other parts of the body. How come we don't have those also listed in this bracha? How come only the eyes and the heart? He says, perhaps we can say, because the eyes and the heart are specifically required for davening, and they specifically need some extra support and chizuk for davening. And we're davening. <laughs> this is the bracha to go into saying Kriyashma, right? Perhaps that's why. So he says, perhaps we could understand it according to the Gemara and the, the Yerushalmi in Brachos. That the eyes and the heart are the two servants of sin. We mentioned that before. They work together to serve up sin. Because the eye sees and the heart craves. And upon them and their emotional outputs, all the other limbs of the body depend. And therefore we pray that their, that their quality should be turned only for that which is Kodesh, for that which is holy. Now, if you've ever davened, you know that your eyes can definitely lead you, <laughs> lead the rest of you away from any concept of what you're davening. Your lips could still be moving. Right, I remember at my husband's yeshiva in Israel one year, the Bachrim, they used to, on Purim, they would make Purim plays. And one of them was a, one man is davening Shemona Esrei. So he stood there the whole time, shuckling and looking at a sitter. And then they had a voiceover. So it's like his thoughts that are going on, you know, at the same time. And, you know, he hits his heart and he's like, what, who was that? Oh, you know, like... No idea, right? And everyone laughed because everyone can relate to this. Your heart can definitely take you anywhere and your eyes can take you anywhere in the middle of davening. So specifically when it comes to davening is a really good time that we're asking Hashem to please strengthen these things only to be used for their positive purposes where they lead us into mitzvot and into that which is holy. Because there's really almost nothing that's more frustrating than discovering that you're davening to Hashem and thinking thoughts that are unholy. That's really, you know, not just that you've gone off track, but that you've gone really far off track. Okay. And what, uh, more about this connection, of this very close connection of the eye and the heart, and the heart to the eye, is indicated in Masecha Savodazara. Where it says, Shura, I hope I'm reading this correctly. I checked with the kids. Shuraina de'ena be'uvnisa deliba talia. The muscles of the eye are connected to the tissue of the heart. The muscles of the eyes are connected to the tissues of the heart. And Rashi explains that the effect on the eyes has a direct impact on the heart itself that what the eyes see will cause the heart to speed up, slow down. The eyes affect the heart directly. So sensation and experience of the eyes will affect the eyes and the heart and vice versa. 
This is similar to the idea in the Chafetz Chaim, right? That these, these two things are so intertwined, or not the Chafetz Chaim, I'm sorry, the Minchas Chinuch, the commentary on the Sefer Chinuch, where these two are acting so much in conjunction that when you affect one, you affect the other, right? That the nerves of one are entangled with the nerves of the other. They, they somehow are overlapping in a physical way. As a physical trigger, they physically and emotionally work together. One will always trigger the other. And therefore, even in sort of colloquial speech, although his idea of colloquial is to give examples from Tehillim, so I'm not sure colloquial is the right term, but uh, in usage, let's say, in common use, we bring them together. So for example, in Tehillim, Libi or Enai Gamhim Eniti. My, <coughs> sorry, my heart is darkened and the light of my eyes is not with me. It's very common to see heart and eyes, heart and eyes brought together because what affects one affects the other. It means to say that at the time that the heart is feeling sinking or reduced or violated, so also the light of the eyes will be destroyed at this time. And other examples, he brings an example from Eicha, about this, our, our hearts are grieved and our eyes are darkened. And there are many other examples like this in the Torah. Another interesting example, a pasuk in Parshas Kisavo, v'nasan lecha sham lev rogez. God will give you a heart of anger v'chilyon enayim and darkened eyes or destroyed eyes. In other words, um, he, he quotes, he says, it's said in the name of Rashi, but he doesn't see it in the Rashi, <laughs> that because of anger, the eyes are darkened. Now, that's an idea we know from other places also in Torah, right? There was, there's also attributed to Moshe that if he got angry, then he didn't remember the Torah. He had to go and ask Hashem, what was that halacha again, right? That anger darkens the eyes, that these are tied together. The heart and the eyes are tied together. So therefore, it means, what, is, what does that mean if the heart were sad and the eyes were dark? So he says darkened eyes, one of the things, darkened eyes can mean a lack of insight. Darkened eyes can mean depression and worry. Right? The sparkle has gone out of someone's eyes. That is a colloquialism. Right? That's not, okay. In other words, once these sirsurim, once these uh, spies for sin, the eyes and the heart, who serve up sin, catch a person into the sin, they don't just let go. It's not like, oh, well, the sin is over and behind me, I'll have a fresh start. Now you're trapped in the darkness of the eyes and the darkness of the heart in worry and in guilt and in anxieties because of having stumbled. And that takes you further off the road. Okay, so that was piece number one about this deep entanglement of the eyes and the heart at every level. Now, then he goes on and brings another point, which is, hang on, we learned the eye sees and the heart craves. And then the body completes the action. If so, if so, then maybe a person who's blind can't sin. 
Because if you can't see anything, your heart won't crave anything, and then you can't do anything wrong. So he says, there is a Gemara in Sota that says, Ein Yetzirah Sholet Ela B'masha Einav Ro'os. The Yetzirah has no dominion except over what you see with your eyes. But this is very difficult to understand because our actual experiences seem to contradict this. Because certainly people who can't see still have a Yetzirah and still do sins. And we also know from our own personal experiences that there seem to be things that we haven't seen that we still might be able to get trapped, tripped up by and entrapped by. So what is, what is the Gemara trying to tell us in saying that really the Yetzirah the only can dominate where you can see it? So he says, really, there's two kinds of cravings and two kinds of lust. There is craving and lust for things which are actually requirements for survival. It doesn't mean that at that moment, so you could crave chocolate. Chocolate is not a requirement for survival, but you don't have to see chocolate to suddenly have a desire for it. Why? Because that can be a craving of the heart. In other words, something that is looking to the inside of yourself and what the body actually needs, which it does need food and it does need calories and it does need, you know, there are things that the body actually requires. So things that the body requires, they can also get out of control, they can also become desires. But in and of themselves, food and drink, he says, you don't have to have eyes to stumble in those areas because the desire for those things comes from inside of you, not from outside of you. And there happens to be that, that they got awakened. The need of the body awakened it, even if the body didn't really need it at the moment. Okay. But there are other things that have nothing to do with any requirement of the body in the first place. And these are things that the taiva for them only comes out of the fact that the eye saw it. So, I don't know a new iPod. There's no inherent physical requirement to survive in the world to have an iPod. We all did for many, many years before they were invented and built. So we know they're not an actual life requirement that has gone out of control. What they are is something that we saw and then learned to crave. So the eye saw it and the heart craved it. And this is a different kind of taiva. He says, really, that's the sort of thing that Chazal are talking about when they say the Yetzirah can only dominate on that which the eye sees, that there are two kinds of craving. He says, in truth, even though we call it all Yetzirah, he says the kind of, of desire and craving that comes based upon an actual physical need, he said, really, it shouldn't rightfully be called Yetzirah, a bad craving, a bad inclination, because it isn't inherently bad. It's necessary. It's maybe I'm trying to remember. He has, he has like a name he would suggest. He would say, you know, it should be called um, a Yetzer TV, like a natural craving. Doesn't make it okay to follow it all the time. Not everything that's natural means it's good for you. <coughs> it doesn't mean it's necessarily good for you. But he says, really, you could distinguish. And that's what the Gemara is doing, is it's distinguishing between things we crave, which are actually inherently, they're fine, but you have to know how much and in what situation it's appropriate, and things which we crave only because our eyes saw them. We saw them, and therefore we wanted them. 
which I thought was just like a very interesting when you say it's an interesting distinction and it could even be a useful distinction in, in trying to manage your Yitzhara. It could be a useful thing to recognize. And then the puzzle goes on. Don't follow your eye, your heart. Don't follow your eyes, which you stray after. So what is added by the fact that we stray after them? So we already can tell from what we've learned one thing, which is because it could be that you follow your eyes and heart into something good sometimes. In fact, you should try to design your world so that you are tempting your eyes and heart into that which is good. So it's a question of who's following who and all of that. But if you just follow your eyes and your heart, then you will go astray and end up not where you wanted. But the word zonim, going astray, you know, it's a difficult word to even say. Because when you say zonim, it means to be prostituted. I mean, it's a pretty strong word. You know, in English, you could say that. And you could mean even talking about other kinds of yetzaharas. And yet you'd have a pretty big impact if you stood up in front of a big class and used that word, you know, don't follow your heart and eyes, which prostitute you after that. You know, it's, a, it's rather shocking, and it is here too. Zoni macharehem, it does mean to go, a, go astray, but like everybody knows that zona is a prostitute. So it's talking about something pretty, pretty deep and pretty not nice, where, where the Torah is saying this is going to take you. Following the heart and following the eyes could take you very, very far astray. So now I'm going to read you a paragraph from Rav Hirsch in Chorev on Zenus. I will not read the entire essay. It's a short essay, nonetheless. It's bad enough I said the word prostitute. We don't need to read the whole essay. But I will read you this, this paragraph, which is also much more closely tied to what we're learning than his whole entire approach to Zenus. If pleasure is the highest aim of the man, so that he allows himself to be led only by his lust, and even in the use of his most valuable possession, his body, he does not listen to God's voice, but to the voice of his lust, will he then still regard himself and all creatures as God's servants? What happens to the way he thinks about himself, and what happens to the way he thinks about other people? You having a contact crisis? <laughs> Will he still regard his possessions as a means to the service of God? What are the odds that a person who's allowing himself to be led by his animal lusts, maybe he's having an affair, who knows, right? Is, how is he going to, is he going to feel that he is a servant of God? Is he going to feel that other people are servants of God? Because, you know, that's uncomfortable. He doesn't want to think about that. So he's not going to think about that. He's not going to see other people as representatives and servants of God. He's unlikely to think of his belongings as having their purpose, as being a means to the service of God. Why do I have this money? Why do I have this car? It must be to serve Hashem. Because he has already corrupted himself in terms of that he doesn't listen to God's voice in terms of the most important possession he has, which is his body. That's the most important tool he has to serve God. Will he not wish to forget 
and soon no longer be able to grasp the very conception of God, the only creator and master of the world whom everything else serves? Will he not also wish to forget the law which he has banned from his inward self? He sinks down to avodazara, idol worship, in whichever form it be. He has drawn a very, very direct line, Rav Hirsch, a very direct line from Znus to avodazara. Why? Because the person seeks to forget his relationship with God and therefore, over time, will in fact forget. And so he goes and follows other philosophies of whatever type because he doesn't want to think about being indebted to God and centered on God. So that leads to a vodazara. Remember we said achare levavchem v'achare enechem. One was minus, apikorsos, avodazara, that's levavchem. Achare enechem was the taiva. And lastly, will he who has no regard for his own body and misuses it if only his lust be satisfied, will he still hesitate long when the misuse of the property of others can lead to the satisfaction of his lust? Very difficult to argue with him. Thus, lewdness leads to robbery and to murder. And whichever of these three sins, lechery, idol worship, or murder, gilu yarayos, shvichos damim, avodazara, it's the big three, things for which we would rather die rather than violate. Whichever one of these begins, it always draws the sisters of evil after it. Yeah. And a world from which the conception of God, justice, and the dignity of man have disappeared must decline, and is, as our sages note, nevertheless in a state of decline, however it might glitter in other respects, until a new generation arises and reestablishes the pillars of the world. This is, uh, one, one will bring the other. And almost by necessity. Okay, now Rav Hirsch here in Shalach, Okay, so I'm kind of using that as a ground level, and then we'll take another step on top of it, also from Reverse. This is his commentary on this verse in Davening, um, in Davening, in Chumash. Lema'an tizkuru, sorry, lo sasur achare levavchem v'yachare inechem asher temzonim achareim. Our verse is explained in Brachos. Achare levavchem, after your hearts, this is minus, this is heresy. And after the eyes, this is thinking about sin, right? Is arousal of taiva. Atem zonim, which you stray after. This is the straying after the avodazara. Okay, this is that's a gemara. It lays down the profound truth that minus denial of God is not as it ostensibly boasts to be, the father of a heart wishing to be free from the laws of morality, but is the child thereof. It's a great insight. It's a great insight. It's also chazal. Right. comes up in Parsha's Pinchas. <laughs> Actually, the end of Bala. Okay. Denial of God is not the father of a heart wishing to be free from laws of morality, but the child thereof. Meaning, when people deny God, that's not what causes immorality. Immorality causes denial of God. The novel, the morally faded withered one, tries to quieten his conscience by denying the existence of God. And Minus, denying God, degenerates into avodazara, polytheism. 
Only the consciousness of God makes us spiritually free. He who, in order to escape the mastery of one power, meaning God, in a trice denies its existence, only throws himself under the yoke of Baalim, of a host of blind forces of nature, forcing him hither and thither without reason like a toy balloon in the wind. If a person seeks to deny that there is one God who is in control of his life, then he discovers that what he has created for himself is a world in which he feels that he is ruled by hundreds of forces, unpredictable, that randomly will scatter him and blow him anywhere. When you look at history since 200, the span, you can see that uh, the way enlightenment has gone has followed also the way people behave. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's what he's saying. He's saying it follows the behavior. Right. It's a consequence of the behavior either to justify it or to not have to think about it. But that's why it was important to sort of see what he had said about the Znustas. Because over there, he really details it more. He wishes to forget and soon cannot even conceptualize the idea anymore. And this is, you know, this is a very, very powerful and important lesson to realize inside of each one of ourselves, <clears throat> which is that there is a natural tendency to not want to think about something that is painful or shameful. If we're ashamed of something we've done, if it pains us to think about something, then we tend to not want to think about it. The danger, there's an understandable reason, which is we don't want to face who we really are. That's Adam trying to hide in the garden. And Hashem says, where are you? Where are you? You're in your body? Your body is you? that you could hide it? You're not your body, you're your Tzalem Elohim. You can't hide, you can't run far enough to escape whatever it is you're trying to hide from. I think a lot of people know that from their own experience as well, or from the experience of those around them. And yet, our mind tries to do that. I think we are afraid to find out that we are bad, or unlovable, or selfish, or wrong, or foolish, or thoughtless, and we try and hide, and we try and distract ourselves and wish to forget. But the truth is that when we face that which we are afraid to face, when we, if, if you can sense it is a very subtle play in the mind, and you can sometimes feel it if you care enough to try and find it, it feels like two matching magnets. If you've ever brought two positively charged magnets near each other and then they kind of force each other away without ever touching. So you're thinking deeply about something, you're trying to understand, you're trying to figure out where you've gone wrong and your mind just keeps gliding away from somewhere. That's the part you're trying not to think about. Not consciously, it's unconscious. You don't even know you're doing it. And when you can find it and face it, then what you find is that you're at Selim Elohim, you're not a body. And it and not that what you did wasn't so terrible, but that you're still striving for God. Instead of running away, hoping you can hide somewhere. And you can find something that is encouraging, and that, but it takes a kind of courage to face it. Because there's a very strong magnetic force inside of you that's trying to repel you away. And say, no, don't look over here. Look over there. It went that way, right? There's this like voice. It's like, it's not even a voice. It's just a feeling in your mind that keeps saying, look over there, look over there, look somewhere else. And sometimes you have to look really at the heart of it. And when you look at the heart of it, you may see something you didn't want to see. But then you also see that you saw it. It's not the power. 
The things we're afraid to think about are not the gods. They don't have real power over us. So when you see them, then you can move on. And I think that this, what the Torah is telling us here is, these are tzitzis. There's a concept of tzitzis. There's a concept of something which sticks out and gives you a handle to look at and helps you to look and to see and to remember the mitzvahs of God and to do them and not get scattered running after your heart and after your eyes. It's possible to, to use tools that will help you to look at what you need to look at and that can change also who you are. Okay, I think we will stop here today. Um, and hopefully continue into the next puzzle.